Hey, good morning. Hope you're doing great. What do we call that uh, section of scripture? Anybody know? Anybody give, give us our name for it? Anybody have, have a clue? Beatitudes. Yeah, yeah, you know it. Beatitudes. I don't know why we call it that. We gave it that name, and we're going to jump into it in just a moment and give you some frames around it. Um, but odds are, most of what we think about who Jesus is or how he led or what these phrases mean, we are going to have to undo some things. And so we'll just take our, t- take our time with it today. Hey, do you appreciate Josh and the team? It's really good. I really appreciate Stacy on the violin and uh, the whole crew. Hey, if you didn't come early and get a cookie, there, I mean, there might be some left over. I don't know. Uh, but we'd love for you to come a little bit early to this service and gather in the gap is what we're calling it. So you come about 10, 15 at the latest. You can come a little bit earlier and get a jump on the cookies ahead of first service people. So like, if I'm still preaching and you walk in and start mounting on the cookies, that'd be perfect. That'd be great. And then they'll come out and hang with you and you'll get to see some people maybe you haven't seen in a while. Our hope is that as you go through this season, uh, that we've been asking the question really since the beginning of the pandemic, what is church even about? Why, why are we here? Why do we gather? Does it work? Does it count if we're not here and if we're there? Hello, people online. Um, How does that even fit? And our answer has been a great big resounding, of course, the body of Christ is necessary right now and needed. And it works best when you and I or you and each other kind of engage in faith with the people that you know well. That's why we're giving you some questions to ponder and wrestle through this series. And our hope is that you're taking advantage of that and that you're enjoying that. And we hope you enjoy some Guatemalan coffee. Anybody getting Guatemalan coffee? Thanks to Scott Vare and the friends at World Orphans. Uh, we're grateful for you and for providing that. And we hope you make it down to the collective and jump in to that scene a little bit. So we started last week with this very first verse of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is uh, three chapters in Matthew. And if you're not sure where to read scripture, when you open up the Bible, it's a great place to start. You can always count on the words of Jesus to poke and prod and comfort and guide and all the above as you make your way in your faith. This is what Jesus said. In fact, we'll say this together with some energy and a little bit of that caffeine working. It's setting in you, right? This is what Jesus said. Say it with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And with this one phrase, Jesus kicks off what we call the Beatitudes. There's all kinds of words in the Bible that aren't really the Bible. All those little headings, little numbers, they really aren't the Bible. We added those. And above this passage of Scripture, it says Beatitudes in your Bible. And I don't know why we named it that. I have no idea really even what that means. But Jesus kicks off eight statements that are structured just like this. They all follow the same sort of syntax. There's a a condition or a thing or maybe what we might call a, a virtue or attribute that he mentions. And he says that these people who exhibit this are blessed, but then he gives some corresponding gift or result or, or something, benefit of being this. So in this case, it's very clear, it's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. That's what they get. And he does this eight times in a row. And he gives us eight ideas and, well, seven different benefits and results because he repeats this one at the very end because Jesus has a very specific idea in mind about the kingdom and everything he's going to say in these beatitudes they frame all of his teachings not just the sermon on the mount it's very hard to understand who Jesus is if you don't get the beatitudes If you start somewhere in the middle of the Gospels and just kind of pick up the narration or pick up a parable, if you haven't grasped where the Beatitudes are going, 
then you might miss the whole of who Jesus is and what he has in mind. And many of us, and I have for a long time, missed so much of who Jesus is and what he had in mind. But if you're like me and you like living a Christian life, and maybe you follow Jesus for a while, you look at the Beatitudes and you think, this is good, this is good. Jesus has given me a if then. He's given me, if I kind of do this thing, I'm gonna get this. And I love scriptures that give this picture of if I do my part, God will show up and he'll do his part. If I put a dollar in, I'm gonna get a Coke out of the bottom, right? I mean, it's not vending machine theology, but it's pretty close. And we have this idea that if I do what I say I would do or what scripture tells me to do, then God has sort of a, I don't know, divine responsibility to come through on his end. If I'm faithful in my marriage, God will give me a good family. If I raise my kids according to him, well, even Proverbs says they won't depart from the way. And so I, these are things surely I can count on God for. And they're good things that he says. I mean, who wouldn't want the kingdom of heaven? And here's the whole list from the Beatitudes. All these promises that he gives us, the kingdom of heaven, comfort, inherit the earth. I would dig that. I've got about like a half acre now. I wouldn't mind some more. Filled with righteousness, receive mercy. I would see God. We would be called the children of God. And again, he gives us another bookend. I'll be given the kingdom of heaven. And so these things are these promises that Jesus gives us. And he even gives us the corresponding to-do list if we'll kind of match it up with the thing that we want. How many of you make to-do lists? Let me see your hands. Raise them up. Okay. You like to-do lists? How many of you like to-do lists like a lot? You're like addicted to them. You like to-do lists a lot? How many of you write down on your to-do list something that you've already done just so that you can check it off? Be honest. Confess. Confess. It's church. It's good for your soul. Veronica, is that what you do? Well, Steve outed you, so you didn't actually admit it, but he was pointing above your head. This is how we do some, do some marriage counseling in church when spouses out one another. This is, this is how we are about things to do. We want to know to-do lists, and this is a great list, and it has a list in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, and we like lists because they're dependable. They tell us what to do, where to go, how to act, and how to be. And anybody who is concerned about spiritual endeavors wants to know where to go. I mean, the series is called Follower, right? I mean, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. The graphic has a picture of a path, and Jesus says, follow me. And when he says that, we say, yes, I want to follow you. Where are you going? And the Beatitudes give us a picture of that. If we want to make progress, we want to do what he says. And this is how we view spiritual life, the Beatitudes. Do the right things and life will go well for you and with you. We want to make some, some progress. And it's not just these things. It's a lot of other things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. The first three Beatitudes, five more next week, but these are on our list today. And we want the things that Jesus promises us. And here's the problem. The Beatitudes aren't a to-do list. In fact, they don't represent anything like a to-do list. In fact, the Beatitudes aren't even a list of virtues that followers of Jesus should pursue. They're not that at all. In fact, there's something very different than that. And without the right frame, you'll miss the whole point of why Jesus came. So some years ago, 
uh, author, the late author, David Foster Wallace, gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. It's the only commencement speech he gave. He's a famous author, bestseller, wrote several long, arduous, very tedious novels. But he's successful and writes literature. Uh, He eventually took his own life, couldn't handle the depression that consumed him and trouble with meds. But when he was a bit healthier, he stood before a graduating class at Kenyon College, and he started his commencement speech with this little parable. Very first words out of his mouth, he's in his cap and gown, and he says this. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. The older fish nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? The two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks at the other and says, what the heck is water? It's a little parable, and that's how he started. He made a few other comments, but then he said this. The immediate point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. It's a great statement, wise, very wise. And to understand it, you might need a dictionary. I did. Let's read it again. Just take it in kind of slow. The immediate point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, ubiquitous, the clearly plain, easily seen by everybody, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. And that's true. Some things that we see around us, for example, in your family, the way it's always been or the way we always handle things, obvious to everyone, but nobody wants to bring it up. Nobody wants to have the discussion. What David Foster Wallace observed is true for lots of things. And if we were to say, collectively speaking, whether we're in the church or just in our culture, here in Western culture, or let's just say humanity overall, and we were to ask that question that the old fish and the young fish talk about, what is the water that we're swimming in? What's around us that we don't often see that is clearly holding us up in place and in front of us, below us? on the sides, behind us, all around us. What is that water? We could call it this. In fact, someone could make an argument that this is the water. Our water is a culture that values success and wealth and fame and power and achievement. If you want to know what a culture values, all you have to do is look at the heroes of that culture. Look at what values are upheld. Look at what achievements are lauded and which ones are applauded. Our culture, maybe more than anything else, is a culture that values success and wealth and fame and power and achievement. And we swim in this water every day. And it influences how we see the world, how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we relate to each other. Now, I've followed Jesus for a few decades, and when I read a statement like that or ponder this larger value of a success culture that we have in our world, I like to think I'm kind of impervious to it, you know? I mean, I grew up in church. I know what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, he's, he's uh, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one that said, if you're going to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. I, I mean, I know these are, you know, humility, basic core Christian values, and I would like to think it hasn't affected me much at all, but I think maybe that's not true. 
my son is in LA, our youngest son, and he's a musician and he does music and he does some uh, producing and writing and he's just trying to make it, you know, he's just trying to pay his bills right now. But of course he has some hopes and dreams and some of them will be wrapped up in some of these words, but mostly he just wants to do what he loves. He wanted to be a drummer ever since I can remember, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old. And he would say to me as he entered in middle school and especially high school, he said, dad, I'm gonna be a drummer. And I said, that's great, that's not a plan, that's a, that's a hope. So you need a plan. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you need to go to college. Well, how would that help me be a drummer? I said, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> you need to go to college, and so he went to college. And then after he got his degree, he began to pursue music, I think the way he wanted to right out of high school. And so he's pursuing it in LA, and he's having some success, and he's paying his bills, and he's having a blast and a lot of fun. And I love to hear his stories, because I was a drummer. I mean, maybe I still am a drummer, but I had some of those same hopes and aspirations, but just went a different path. So now I get to live through Carter a little bit, you know, like all healthy parents do, living our successes through our kids. So Carter told us a story. He said, Dad, me and my buddy, they have a band together, and he said, we need to record a video, but we needed a beach to record it on. And we needed a beach really with nobody on it. And so we were all over LA looking for a beach that was fairly empty. That's hard to find in LA. And so we gave up that day and he has another friend that was helping him with some of these projects. And he said, I think I know where we can find a beach. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, one of my friends, they have kind of a private beach. And Carter said, well, can you get us there? And he said, yeah, I'll get you there. And so they made all the arrangements and Carter and his friends, a small crew of about five of them drove up to Malibu uh, to record this video. And they're going to the house and, and they're pulling up and it's, it's a beautiful home, just a beautiful home, big, big home in Malibu, just above the ocean, the Pacific cliff there. It's just incredible. And uh, Carter, as they're pulling up, says, you know, and he's telling me the story, I'm listening, you know, waiting for the, the bomb to drop. He says, he asks his buddy, well, who's, whose house is this? He said, well, look, I, I mean, I don't want you to tell a lot of people, but this house belongs to Courtney Cox. I don't know if you know who Courtney Cox is, but you might know her as Monica, right, on the, on the Friends show. And, and so Carter's like, oh, my goodness. He said, Dad, we knocked on the door, and the door opened. I said, well, who opened the door? He said, Courtney Cox opened the door. I thought, oh, my goodness. That's, that's crazy. I mean, that's just nuts. And he begins to describe their evening, and they hung out together. He explains how Courtney Cox cooked them dinner in her outdoor kitchen, just the six of them. She sat and spent, I don't know, four hours with them. And I would like to think that success and wealth and fame, you know, holds no allure for me. <clears throat> but my jaw was on the table, pondering his evening. And, and then it hit me, uh, oh my goodness, my values are different than this. How did, how did the little, you know, sparkly, shiny thing of fame make me feel like that she or anyone in her proximity is more important than anyone else? And yet this is the water we swim in. And so when I find myself in a position where I can say hello to somebody who can benefit me in no way or build a relationship with somebody that can give me some sort of social currency, which path will I take? When I have a chance to make a difference in somebody's life that only allows them to see how they have been made in the image of God or 
Maybe some favors will come back my way. What lens will I use? See, this is a lens that we have. We don't even know we have it. But our water that we swim in, I don't care what profession you're in, whether you grew up in church or you're the most religious person you know, the water we swim in is a culture that values success and wealth and fame and power and achievement. Every corner of it. And for many of us, to a greater or lesser degree, this is the lens we use to evaluate my life, your life, each other's life, and the people that we interact with in a thousand different ways. But what we suggested last week is that we use a different lens. The different lens is the kingdom of God, and this is the lens that Jesus used to evaluate all of life and all of his teachings, and it's as different as taking glasses that don't work and putting on glasses that do work. And the lens we suggested is that the kingdom of God is, is here and now. I mean, you can't see it. This is why Paul says we, we focus on things we cannot see, not things we can see right in front of us, like celebrities or status or wealth or square footage or the size of your yard or anything like that here and now. It's within us and among us. We carry it with us. It's not an earthly kingdom, so it's really hard to grasp. You know, we don't have a, a king that sits on a throne that we can see. Or it's a very different thing, but Jesus would call it, and I believe the gospels represent it as the rule and the reign of Jesus in my heart and your heart. And what that means is, is what he says matters. His values trump mine. In fact, we asked you last week and the week before to answer and wrestle with this question, okay? What are one or two of the core values that you're building your life on? And you know what they are. You could probably name them. You know, family matters, you know, independence, you know, work ethic. Uh, laughter is a big deal, so we like to laugh together. We tell stories, whatever it is. You could name a lot of core values. But my guess is that you know enough about how life works and who God is that you didn't say, I just want as much money as I possibly can get. My guess is you didn't say that. Honestly, even if you thought that, you wouldn't say it because you know better. You might feel it, you might want the security that it can bring, but you wouldn't actually build your life around it, but you might have your heart structured around it. My guess is nobody here, even watching online, would say, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with my life, but I just want to be as famous as I absolutely can. I want more people to know my name than anybody else in this room. We would not even aspire to that. Why? Well, you know Jesus, and you at least know what he's calling you to and these core values begin to comprise a lens. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is going to propose a few values for me and you. And they're going to come against some things that we might want. And the reason why it's hard for us to see it is because we live in a culture. Our water is a culture that values success, wealth, fame, power, and achievement. And so it's in the middle of that tension. There's kingdom values who God is, what he values. And on the other side, this water that we swim in every day at your workplace, with your friends, at school, in your neighborhood, among your moms that compete against each other and kids that compete at school, it's, it's everywhere, achievement, success, and fame. In the middle lies a very deep and strong tension. And right in the middle of that tension, Jesus steps into it and he starts by saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does that mean? And what is Jesus saying? Now, we're going to pick it apart just a little bit. And so a tiny bit tedious, but odds are you and I are so familiar with the poetry of the Beatitudes, we have no idea what this really means. But it's really plain and simple. In fact, there are a lot of scriptures that are far more complex and nuanced than this beatitude or even the ones that follow. This is actually pretty plain and simple. What do you think the Greek word that Jesus said, when he said, blessed are the poor, what do you think it means? It means poor. There's no nuance to it at all. It just means poor. It means you have poverty. It means that when you go to lunch and somebody says, here, you picking up lunch and you open up your wallet and there's nothing there, that's what Jesus said. You got nothing. You have poverty. That means that maybe you once had a pile of this and now you have none of this. And so you have a zero in that place. It's that easy. Now the word spirit's a little bit different. What we think is that Blessed are the poor in spirit means depressed or just sort of down and mopey, like Eeyore or something like that. This is not what it means at all. We, spirit isn't, you know, your essence or anything like that at all. This is the word, the Greek word is, is pneuma, and it has a corresponding Hebrew word that's ruach. Now, ruach is the same word that when God made people, he gathered up the dust and he breathed life into them. That's ruach. That's what it means. It is the God that lives and exists in us. You've been made in God's image and God breathed his life into you to give you, well, as Paul said in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. That's what it means. That's what this word spirit means, pneuma, same thing in the New Testament. So when Mary, when Mary became pregnant, the gospel writers say that she became filled with the Spirit the pneuma, the presence of God, she's pregnant with Jesus. Same as you. When Jesus was baptized by John and the pneuma came down from heaven and filled him, that's the spirit. It's the essence of who God is. We know God the Father and we know God the Son. This is the part of God that fills you and lives as your conscience and helps you take the right steps in the right direction, helps you sense God's presence. The, I can see as you're worshiping, some of you sense God's presence and you connect with him through the lyrics and the words and the notes. That is God's spirit in you. When Jesus was led into the wilderness, he was led by God's pneuma. And so Jesus, he stands in front of people, articulating as a rabbi sort of his thesis statement for all things spiritual. And he has the audacity and the gall to say, blessed are those who don't have any God in them at all. What do they receive? For they receive the, what? The kingdom of heaven. Does that make any sense at all to you? Is that different than what you thought? It is completely upside down from what I think we understand the Beatitudes to mean. Blessed are those who look in their God pocket to pull out what they have and they dig around and they dig deep and they pull it out and it's empty and it's just a little bit of lint and they have nothing to give. They have nothing in there. 
You've felt that way before. You've felt that way when you feel like God is distant or like he's very disappointed in you or like you just can't measure up. You have felt poor in spirit. You have felt a poverty of God stuff in your life at times. And Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. As if you didn't grasp the first idea, he says, blessed are those who what? Those who mourn. Well, in Jewish world, in Jewish theology, the people who mourn are those that feel like God has taken from them, who's taken something that belongs to them or that they love. In fact, who do you think of when we think of God taking from someone? What character in the Old Testament comes to mind first? Job, that's right. What was taken from Job? Everything was taken from Job. And Job was doing the classical mourning. Do you remember? He sat on a pile of ashes and ripped his clothes and just wept and wept and wept and had sores all over. It was awful. Then Job's friends showed up. And what did Job's friends say? Do you remember what his friends said? What did you do? What did you do? This surely must have been your fault. So what is the implication for anyone who mourns? Your path, your life has gone off track and God has withheld his what? His blessing from you. You don't have his blessing anymore. What has happened to you surely must be your fault. If you had walked with God, then he wouldn't have caused this calamity, this pain, this difficulty in your life at all. But Jesus says, that's not true. The opposite is true. The opposite is true. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? Comforted. And then he says, blessed are the meek. Now the word meek there is a great word. Some translations say blessed are the humble. Uh, there's a few other words, but they all kind of mean the same idea. That if you are offended or somebody hurts you and you just simply kind of sit down. Jesus, this is a precursor to turn the other cheek. It's, a, it's kind of a, a preview to it that you receive it. Somebody's injured you and you, you say, yeah, okay, that's fine. Your life has not gone the way you like and so you are the opposite of bold and confident. In fact, everybody listening to Jesus as a rabbi when he ascended to the mount to teach would have expected him to say the opposite of what he said. Blessed are the most spiritual people I know. Blessed are those who know how to celebrate. Blessed are those who are bold and confident. And many followers of Jesus are so busy, sometimes me too, swimming in the water of success and achievement and so on, that we don't understand why Jesus said what he said and what it even means. So we have to take off those glasses, set them aside and pick up these kingdom glasses and begin to see what Jesus said very, very differently. And when we do, then we can begin to understand the words in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's like learning a different language because we are so versed, even in the American church, in success theology, in what it means to be powerful or have achievements or even fame, all for God's purpose, of course. 
But Jesus intended something very different than that. Now, if you begin to grasp some of this, there are two massive implications. And these two massive implications, one is something we should know, and one is something we should do. But if we put on this kingdom lens, we begin to step into it pretty plainly. So here's the first one. Here's the thing that that we should know about these ideas. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. Well, if you and I are honest today, then you and I both know that all of us, at one point or another, end up there in one of those places, maybe all three. Poor in spirit, empty of God. I don't have anything left to give. I don't even know where to turn. We're mourning because of a loss or we have been so beaten by life and what life has done to us that we find ourselves acting very meek. In fact, very opposite from bold and confident. And what Jesus is saying as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, his treatise on what it means to be in the kingdom, is this. Odds are, when you have felt this way, you have felt very far from God. You have felt like he is nowhere to be seen. He's not even in the neighborhood. And Jesus is saying, that's not true. I'm with you. In fact, this word blessed, I mean, we turn it into a hashtag and, you know, it happens when the, I don't know, quits raining, the sun's shining or, you know, our team wins or something. I don't know, but it's very different than how we think of it. The, the term blessed means that, that God sees you and he puts you in an umbrella of his grace and mercy and love. Do you remember the old story in the Old Testament about um, Jacob and Esau and them trying to steal their father's what? Blessing. That's right. This is the concept that Jesus has in mind when he says blessed. You know what they wanted to steal was their father's approval. So it, it went with all kinds of things. It went with a, a massive inheritance. It went with this sort of seal of approval. Uh, it, it, was a, it was the most tangible expression of a parent's love that you could absolutely conjure or imagine. And what Jesus says in these verses in the Sermon on the Mount is these people experience that very same thing. It's not just a a moment of bliss or passing happiness or contentment that fades. It's God looking at you and saying, you are under my umbrella of grace and mercy. And Jesus says that about people who are impoverished regarding God, don't have any God at all. Jesus says that about people who are mourning and feel like God is distant and maybe even punishing them the way Job felt. Jesus says that about people who don't even have the strength to stand up for themselves or even the boldness to say, you can't treat me that way. That's who he says it about. And some of you have felt that way and you need to know that God meets you in your poverty and your fear and your meekness and he is with you. You feel like he's distant but your feelings betray the truth. God is with you. And because he's with you, close to the brokenhearted as it says in scripture, he'll never leave you. And some of you need to know that because you feel poor in spirit and you're mourning today and And you feel alone in it, but you're not alone. And that Jesus would say this 
publicly means everything. Some of you just need to know that today. Now, it's something we need to do. And some of you just need to know something. You don't need to do anything. Some of you need to do something, but there's a couple in here that are probably multitaskers they are going to know and do, okay? So the thing that you need to do is this. There were people who were in, in the presence of Jesus speaking those words, and they're in the presence of me speaking them now, or people reading them, that feel very unloved and unlovable. The people that are like that are those who are mourning and those who are poor in spirit and those who are too meek to even say, you can't do that to me. I need my way. You need to not treat me this way. Those are the people that are in your workplace, that are in your neighborhood, that are friends, that are in your family. They're going to walk in front of your path this week. And God wants to use you as an instrument of his blessing, an umbrella of his mercy and grace for you to communicate something incredibly different to them. And you can do so if you see them, if you value them, if you love them, and if you allow God to use you as an instrument of his love. There's a star this week, a Wellspring star, that cashed her paycheck, the very first paycheck she's ever received for the very first time this week. She received it from the collective. She went through an interview process She was hired, and then she worked, and now is paid, and then experienced the joy of giving the government a good portion of that. (laughs) Paying taxes just like me and you. And she put this picture on Facebook with her check, feeling somehow dignified as a person, because some people had a vision that dignity is not often afforded to adults with disabilities. And so they get a different chance now. And it's not just the collective that does that. King Supers has a program that does very much the same thing, but there's more work to be done. And there are people in your workplace that don't think you know their name because they're cleaning or because they're unimportant or because they don't have worldly value. There are neighbors that need to know that you know their name, that you remember their story. And if you don't, you can start by remembering their name and remembering their story. Because they're poor in spirit. Because they have been kicked and cast aside. Because they have been so beaten up by life that they've decided their only option is to remain meek and unseen. But God's kingdom is different. His kingdom is different. And he's placed you in the circumstances that you're in because he trusts and believes that you will not see with the lens of the water of our culture that you will put on a different set of glasses that you will see with different eyes. And with those different eyes, you will see people that need to know that they've been made in God's image, that they have within them this pneuma, this this breath of God, and that they, in fact, are seen and known and loved and valued. And you can do that. You can do that when you're at the grocery store and you can just see the weariness on the checker's face. You can do it when you call customer service and they're expecting a rant, just like the other 10 rants they just had. And instead you offer to be kind and compassionate and encourage them and thank them for the job they're doing. You could do it in a thousand different ways. And when you do, 
the kingdom of God grows a bit bigger and you become an answer to prayer. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we guide you through a prayer. And that prayer is going to be about what we need to know, what we need to do. And then we'll finish with, uh, well, a song that captures the essence of this Old Testament blessing that Jesus says belongs to the people who least expect it. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would call to mind right now just some, some names, some people that need a bit of your love and a bit of your mercy. Lord, we want to be used by you this week, but more than anything else, we want our own perspective of life and vision of what life in the kingdom looks like, and we want a glimpse of that. Lord, we believe that fame is, is passing, that wealth will burn up, that achievements will, will they gather the same dust of the trophies that we won when we were young. Lord, we want to find our significance in who you are and how you made us. We want to find our significance and our importance in how we love. And so if there's anyone listening, either here or online, and mostly they just need to know that, that when they have felt poor in spirit that you were right beside them, that your presence was there and they even today, are not alone. Lord, would you make that obvious and known to them right now? Help them to sense the presence of your spirit. Lord, and for those of us that need to do this week, would you give us kingdom eyes to see what needs to be done? Who needs to be loved? Whose life needs to be spoken into? Who needs to be encouraged? Lord, we believe that this blessing is for us. And it's not just for us, but it's for those that we walk with in our families and, and our friends. And we're grateful that you love us this way. So soften our hearts, draw us to you, and use us. Use us in your kingdom.